All right, well, good morning, church. It is good to see you. It's already been a good day in the house of the Lord, hasn't it? Amen, amen. If, uh, if you have your Bible with you, I'd love for you to open it now to Genesis chapter 2, verse 18. That's on page 2 in your church Bibles there. This morning, we are building on some of the things we talked about last week. Last week, we talked about the fact that in the beginning, God made us male and female. And this week, we're getting a little more specific as we investigate the essential goodness of marriage. Marriage is a good thing. Can you say amen to that? Amen. Amen. Well, saying amen to that makes you very odd. Uh, It's just one of the many things that are odd about you. Uh, But this one in particular makes you stand out against our culture because actually an increasing number of young people, and people in general, but young people in particular, in our culture, are not convinced that marriage is a good thing. And in fact, a number of people, both inside and outside the church, are beginning to sound the alarm about that. Uh, Jean Twenge, whom I have cited many times, she's not a Christian, she's a social psychologist, uh, and she's an observer of changes that happen in culture Uh, She reports that the average uh, age for marriage now in North America is 31 for men and 28.5 for women. And as you can see there, it has been going up and up and up. Fewer people in our culture are getting married, and when they do, if they do, they're getting married later in life. And as you can well imagine, that is having a disastrous impact on fertility rates in North America. If fewer people are getting married, and if they're getting married later in life, then you would expect to see fertility rates going down, and that is exactly what you're seeing. And you'll see that in the next graph that they put up there. Fertility rates are going down, down, down. There's an obvious correlation. If average age of marriage is going up, then you would expect to see fertility rates going down. There has been a dramatic decline in fertility amongst millennial women, and the prediction is that things will be significantly worse among Gen Z women, whom Twenge describes as the least marrying generation in living memory, at least so far. Uh, Gen Z, the oldest Gen Z women right now are 27 years old. One of the reasons for this uh, issue is the massive spike in LGBTQ plus identification, particularly among young females in our culture. And there has been, again, just a a massive spike there. Twenge goes on to say, by 2021, one in seven high school freshmen identified as something other than straight. So just to state the obvious, marriage is in trouble right now in our culture. And that's really too bad because all of the information, all the studies that, that are being conducted right now seem to indicate that marriage is really, really good for human beings. The 2022 GSS, or General Social Survey, uh, which is one of the largest surveys of uh, social trends, showed that married women with children are the happiest people in America right now, closely followed by married men with children. Uh, And then uh, just this past week, uh, it was, in fact, it came out, I think it was on uh, February 9th, so it was too late to get you any fancy slides from it, Uh, but Just on February 9th, there was a new study that was released by the Institute for Family Studies, and the title caught my eye. This will make you smile or made me smile. The title is, Married People Are Living Their Best Lives. 
they didn't put now at the end, but anyway. Uh, I, just, I, I thought it was a funny little title, but basically what they did in, in that survey, which you can find just by Googling it when you go home, uh, as I said, it just came out, so it should be at the top of your Google search. Uh, but what they found there is they measured a whole variety of uh, social outcomes. So things like uh, social well-being, psychological well-being, financial well-being, sexual uh, satisfaction levels, they measured it all, and by almost every conceivable measurement, married people are the happiest people in our culture. That's not the narrative that you pick up in the media. That's not the narrative that you pick up on television shows. I guess people don't watch television anymore. YouTube shows or whatever other nonsense delivery systems are out there. That's, that's, not, that's not the narrative, but it is the fact. So it turns out, actually, that marriage is really good for human beings. Who knew? And the answer, of course, is that God knew. God knows us. God made us. God loves us, and therefore, he gave us the institution of marriage. And as we're about to see that here in Genesis chapter 2, it is... Very good. Hopefully you have your Bibles open by now. We'll read the text, and then we'll talk about marriage in the beginning, marriage after the fall, and marriage among the redeemed. Hear now the word of the Lord. Then the Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. Now out of the ground the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all livestock, to the birds of the heavens, to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, this at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. First of all, then, let's talk about marriage in the beginning. First thing we see in the story is that marriage is the norm for human beings. It's not good for the man to be alone, verse 18. Aloneness represents a departure from design. Aloneness is not good. Now, we're going to talk about singleness two weeks from now. So anytime, particularly given the stats that we've just looked at, in a, in a room like this, there is a higher percentage of single hearers probably than, than at any point in biblical history. Meaning, as a pastor standing up to preach on this text, I imagine this, pre- this text gets preached on once every three years in every church, probably in the universe or in the vast majority of churches. But I'm just saying, right now in this moment in history, there's probably a higher percentage of people listening saying, well, this has got nothing to do with me than, than ever before. But I just want to challenge you. First of all, we are going to talk about singleness. Singleness is a thing, particularly as we get into the New Testament. We're going to talk about that. But I would say marriage is something that was given to humanity as a whole, and everyone in this room is a human being. And so it is something that we should all be concerned about. Let me just... 
do a quick little thing. Any parents in the room concerned about their child's marriage? Now, if your child is sitting with you in the road, do not put your hand up. Okay? Just exercise a little wisdom. <laughs> right? I mean, we, meaning we care about other marriages than just our own, don't we? Maybe I'll ask this. Any kids in the room concerned about your parents' marriage? Right? (laughs) Marriage is something that all human beings should be concerned about. Okay? So hopefully you you can listen through those years. and, And maybe you're sitting here and you think, well, one day I'd like to get married. So no matter where you are in your stage of life, I think that you can listen. But we will talk specifically about singleness in a couple of weeks. But my point is that even if you're called to singleness... You are not called to aloneness. Those who are single are still supposed to be part of the family. So there needs to be space and legitimacy afforded to those who are called to singleness. And as I said, we'll talk more about that in a couple of weeks. But here's the point. To legitimize an exception is not to eliminate a rule. And it is the rule. It is the design of God for men and women to be married. And certainly that was the case in the Old Testament. Barry Danilik, in his book on singleness, points out that the nation of Israel was characterized by near universal marriage for those who were able to marry because marriage and offspring had a fundamental role in the appropriation of the Sinai covenant blessings to the individual Israelite. I'll tell you this, I've been... Uh, kind of building all these, these messages in this series simultaneously because uh, you've got to lay them all out. Like You've probably noticed that right now we're in the part of this series where we're picking up all these major threads that we see in the creation narrative. And then we're kind of tracing them through um, you know, how they were affected by the fall and how they're then redeemed through Christ. That's sort of the, the, the general piece here. But you have to sort of figure out what, what order are we going to do these in? Um, you know, we're doing marriage this week, so I wrestled with should we do singleness next week or should we do children next week? Because actually children come from marriage. Children are, kind of, are one of the main points of marriage. So I thought, well, I think we'll do marriage, then children, then we'll do singleness because actually singleness relates back to the family. So anyway, blah, blah, blah. The point is I've been kind of scoping these things out five, six, seven at a time. And, and I... As I'm reading through all this material, reading through the Old Testament, I'm just pointing out there's not a lot actually to say about singleness in the Bible until you get to Jesus. I don't know if you've noticed that. There is almost no tradition of singleness in the Old Testament. Now, there are a couple of exceptions, and if you're a real good Bible reader, you're probably already thinking of them. The main exception you'd point to is Jeremiah. Jeremiah was commanded by God not to get married. I don't know if you know this, but Jeremiah the prophet was a young man when he wrote his prophecy. And he was commanded by God not to get married because Jerusalem was about to be destroyed by the Babylonians and the people were going to be taken into exile. And that's just a bad time to get married. And so he was told not to get married. And then a bunch of the royal young men that were taken into Babylon as captives were were castrated and became eunuchs. So that's pretty much all you got. And that doesn't sound you know, like something you should aspire to in the Old Testament. Uh, but, it, but it is recognized as, as, a, as a category that is then expanded by Jesus and by Paul. But the point is, it cannot be denied that in the Old Testament, marriage 
was the general rule. It's not good for the man or the woman to be alone. We were made for each other, which takes us to the second thing we need to say here. And according to Genesis chapter 2, marriage is a form of intimate partnership, intimate partnership. I'm taking those two words from the bookends or the brackets of this story. I'm getting the word partnership from verse 18, and I'm getting the word intimate from verse 25. The whole picture that we're given here is a picture of intimate partnership. Talked a little bit about the partnership piece last week. All of these messages kind of overlap. Last week we were talking about male and female, uh, the genesis of gender. We talked about the complementary essence of who we are as men and women. And I mentioned that the Hebrew word in verse 18 that's translated as helper does not imply inferiority, as though the woman were created to be the, ma- the maid or the servant of the man. Not so. In fact, the most common reference for that Hebrew word in the Bible is God himself. What the word means is a partner that corresponds to your need and that can help you fulfill your task. And so what the Bible is saying is that human beings cannot do what human beings were created to do unless they are in right relationship with God and unless they are in right relationship with one another. And that makes sense, doesn't it? We, we need to be in partnership with God to be truly human. We need to be in partnership with God to receive grace to do the things he calls us to do. And we need to be in partnership with one another. John Hammett and Katie McCoy make this point in their book on biblical anthropology. They say, in Genesis 1.28, humanity is charged with the responsibility of multiplying and filling the earth. But in Genesis 2, Adam lacks the partner necessary for carrying out this responsibility. God provides for Adam, not another man, but a woman. To state the obvious, it takes a man and a woman to be fruitful and multiply. But even beyond the biological mechanics, I think we could all agree that it takes a man and a woman to raise a child. We'll be talking more about this next week. But the point is that our differentness is a gift. We're supposed to rejoice in it. It is good. A man and a woman bring different things to the family. And of course you know this. You don't need fancy studies on on this. Uh, You probably know this if you've ever been to the park. Uh, I've taken a lot of kids to the park. I've got five kids. Some of them are scattered in this room right now. Some of them are, have grown up and moved away. And then in addition, my wife and I had 16 uh, foster kids over the nine years before we came here. So I've taken a lot of kids to the park. Uh, that was kind of my main job as a foster parent. When I got home and my wife had kids crawling all over and it was time to make dinner, she would throw a few of them at me and tell me to take them somewhere. And that somewhere was usually to the park. Well, if you've been to the park, you know that moms and dads bring a little something different to the park, don't they? As, uh, as Johnny is climbing up, climbing up the jungle gym, if dad's at the park, uh, he's like, Johnny, you can do it. And then when Johnny gets to the top, he's like, jump, Johnny. And, and mom is over there going, don't you dare jump. You get down from there right now, Johnny. And so when Johnny jumps and hurts himself, because mom was right, that was, that was too high, uh, Johnny comes over to, to mom and gets a hug and a kiss and a Band-Aid and dad gets a smack in the ear, whatever, right? But the point is, actually, you need both of those voices in your ear 
to, to grow up as a healthy human being. You, you need someone telling you that you can do it, that you are capable of more than you think you are, and that you don't, you don't need to, to, to stop every time you see a danger. You can press through. You need somebody saying that. And you need somebody else saying, but you know what? Whatever happens, I just want you to know, I will love you and I'll be here for you. You need both of those. You know, and that's just one, one little example. We could go down, we could list dozens of examples, I'm sure. But the point is, it really does take everything that men and women bring collectively to create an environment where children can thrive. According to the Bible, we talked about this last week, men and women are equal but different. Both of those words matter. We are psychologically different, and we are physically different. A man's body has been optimized for production and protection. A woman's body has been optimized for reproduction and nurture. And there's no point in denying all that. We, as human beings right now, in this moment in our culture, we, we seem to be doing our, our very best to deny those basic realities, which is how you end up with 50-year-old men signing up for the girls' high school swim team, which is happening right now in our country. We, we're trying to pretend that gender is just a state of mind, that it's completely, it's got nothing to do at all with your bodies. But of course, I'm not sure that any of us actually believe that. And, and, and again, we, we, we reveal that we don't believe that when we all get upset with 50-year-old men signing up for the high school swim team. Because our bodies are different. We are different. And the Bible says, don't fight against that. Don't deny that. Actually, be grateful for that. Because you put all that together and you get the best possible environment for raising kids. It's part of the design. Verse 24 says, therefore, as in, to facilitate this program, to actualize this plan, therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. It's actually a bit of an odd sentence. I don't know if that ever triggered you before where you're reading that and you're, therefore a man shall leave his father and mother. Wait a second. Who is Adam's father and mother? doesn't have a father and mother in this story. God literally makes him out of dirt and breathes spirit into him. So what are we doing here? What, what is this verse doing in our Bibles? Well, here, it's here, of course, to, to turn this story into a normative pattern. Kenneth Matthews in his commentary on this passage says that the Hebrew phrase translated in Genesis 2.24, or this is, as this is why, or therefore, describes marriage as the consequence of God's charge for the human family to propagate and rule. That's what marriage is for. Marriage was designed by God as the ideal context in which to have and raise babies. If we're going to do what God created human beings to do, Obviously, you're going to have to have marriage. You're going to have to have partnership, but not just any kind of partnership, not a business partnership, right? You're not in the, you know, raise Billy to maturity business. This is an intimate partnership. Of course, we're pulling that out of verse 25. And the man and his wife were both naked, 
and not ashamed. Isn't that good? That's intimacy. They saw each other. That's the difference. You know, right now our, our culture is in a recovery phase from the hookup culture. Uh, in a couple weeks, I forget however, however many, we're going to talk about the Christian design for sexuality. But just so you know, there is wide, I want to tell you two things, uh, if you're my age or older and you're looking at young people here and you think, boy, you know, what's going on with these young people? Here's two things you should know. A great many young people right now are exhausted from the hookup culture. They've been told by all their teachers and sex educators that sex is just a biological function, there's no moral quality. But their bodies don't believe it. Can I tell you a quick thing? Do you know what the two most frequently prescribed medications are on college and university campuses? Antidepressants and birth control pills. Think there's a combination there? Think there's, like, they've tried to live out this easy sex dynamic and their bodies and their souls aren't having it. Here's another interesting thing you should know about young people. The average young person today is having significantly less sex than the average young person did when, you know, I'm pointing at us, when we were in high school and university. In fact, some, some scholars are referring to it as a sex famine among Gen Zs. So there is all kinds of, of hurt and, and pain out there in, in this issue. And they are longing for what we're seeing here. Oh, to be naked and not ashamed. Oh, to have a sexual encounter that wouldn't leave you in need of medication the next day. Oh, to, to not have sex be such a physical thing, right? Oh, to, to be able to say, this is who I am. This is my body. This is me. To be seen, to be known, and to be loved. That's the biblical vision for sexuality right there in a nutshell. It's a beautiful thing. Third thing we need to see in this passage is that marriage is intended to last a lifetime. Of course, if God makes something, then we ought not to break that something. That probably seems pretty obvious to you. Jesus makes that point explicitly from this passage in Matthew 19. The Pharisees asked him a question about divorce, and Jesus said, Have you not read? By the way, just notice that. Have you not read? Meaning Jesus is treating these creation stories as normative for human behavior in every age. Have you not read? Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female and said, therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. He's quoting from Genesis 2.24. He's saying that's That's normative. That's normative, he's saying. He's saying that what God puts together, God has put men and women together. God has has made marriage for man, for woman. And what God puts together should stay together. Marriage is intended as a form of intimate partnership covering the entire human lifespan. And of course, that's why we used to say in the old marriage vows, for richer or for poorer, for better or for worse, how's that end? Till death do us part. We see in this foundational story that a marriage between a man and a woman is intended to last a lifetime. That's the design. But of course, as we all know, great violence has been done to the design 
We are fallen creatures. We are sinners. We are not now the people that we were created and intended to be. So the second thing we need to talk about is marriage on the other side of the fall. And what do we see there? We touched on this briefly last week. Turn forward in your Bible, probably just one page, to Genesis 3.16. After the fall, the relationship between the first husband and wife is going to be characterized by desire and discord. God says to the woman, explaining the consequences of the fall, your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. The NIV has that as your desire will be for your husband, and he will rule over you. Either way, I think the main point is pretty obvious. As Derek Kidner said memorably, to love and to cherish becomes to desire and to dominate. The original intimacy is now complicated by lust and resentment. The harmonious relationship between the man and the woman is now disrupted by conflict and confusion. We're no longer pulling together towards the same goal. In fact, more often than not, we're engaged in a giant tug of war, and human history seems to bear that out. Second thing we see in the Genesis narrative as we move further and further east of Eden is polygamy and possessiveness. Flip forward maybe just one more page in your Bible to Genesis 4, verse 23. The Bible here quotes a man named Lamech saying to his wives, Ada and Zillah, hear my voice, you wives of Lamech. Listen to what I say. I have killed a man for wounding me, a young man for striking me. If Cain's revenge is sevenfold, then Lamech's is seventy-sevenfold. Everything about that story is odd. How did we go from male and female to male and females? How did we go from a man and his wife to a man and his wives? Where did that come from? It, it, it doesn't come from the design. It comes from the fall. It comes to the introduction of disordered desires. Interestingly, this is not in the Bible, but there's a Jewish oral tradition around this story that says that Lamech took two wives one for the purpose of sexual pleasure and one for the purpose of having and raising children with. Do you see how right away there's a division? And notice this too. Every departure from the design of God results in harm for women. Do you know that? There is is not a single off-ramp from this road that results in better outcomes for women. They're all worse Tim and Kathy Keller in their book on marriage point out that the book of Genesis radically critiques the institution of polygamy. Even though it was the accepted cultural practice of the time, by vividly depicting the misery and havoc it plays in family relationships and the pain it caused, especially for women. By the way, here's, here's a little tip on how to read your Bible. When you read a story in the Bible, you have to ask the question, is this prescriptive or descriptive? Meaning, is this design or virus? So you're not supposed to read the story of Lamech and his two wives and be like, see, I can have two wives. No, this is not design. This is virus. You have to know where you are in the story. Where we are in the story is we're starting to see these off-ramps from the design. And every single one of them leads to discord and conflict, and every single one of them is worse for women. 
Third thing we see after the fall as we move further and further east of Eden is divorce and dissolution. We learn about that in Deuteronomy 24. I won't make you turn all the way there. That's many pages to the right. I will just point out that in Deuteronomy 24, Moses lays down a variety of laws governing and limiting divorce, which had become very common at the time. Again, to the great harm and detriment of women. Divorce in the ancient world was against women, meaning women didn't go to court and get rid of their bad husbands. Typically, men were casting off older wives and replacing them with younger wives. Nothing new under the sun. And so what Moses does is he institutes a variety of laws, slowing and limiting the process and requiring men to give women a certificate of divorce so that they could get remarried. But to be clear, limiting a process is not the same as approving of a process, a point that Jesus makes in Matthew 19. He says, speaking to the Pharisees, who, by the way, I don't know if you know this, we often think of Pharisees as like the super righteous Old Testament people who really just needed to learn about grace. That is not true. Jesus was critical of everything about the Pharisees. And one thing you should know about the Pharisees is they embraced easy divorce. They were trying to get Jesus to endorse their view of easy divorce when he says what he says in Matthew 19. He says, because of your hardness of heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives. But from the beginning, remember, he's, Jesus treats creation as authoritative. He treats these stories as normative. But from the beginning, it was not so. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another commits adultery. Divorce may be necessary for the protection of women in a world filled with fallen men. But in the beginning... It was not so. Again, it is not design. It is virus. The fall has degraded and diminished the institution of marriage. But as we've been talking about, grace restores nature. Grace liberates and elevates human beings. Grace helps us to become again the people we were created and intended to be, which leads us to our final question. What should marriage look like among the redeemed? We're familiar enough now with the contours of this discussion to anticipate that marriage among the redeemed should probably look a lot like marriage at the beginning. Of course, that's the case. As J.I. Packer reminded us last week, the man-woman relationship is intrinsically non-reversible. This is part of the reality of creation, a given fact that nothing will change. Certainly, redemption will not change it, for grace restores nature, not abolishes it. So grace is supposed to take us back, back to who we were supposed to be as men and women, back to who we were supposed to be as husbands and wives. So whatever was true with respect to design should be in some stage of recovery among the redeemed. And indeed, as we read through the New Testament, we become aware of that general trajectory. We see, for example, in the teachings of Jesus, a renewed emphasis on the permanence of marriage. I've already quoted Jesus' response to the Pharisees. Again, they were trying to get him to endorse their easy perspective on divorce, and he would not do it. Read that to you. It might be helpful to read to you the response of the disciples who were listening in as Jesus gave that response. Jesus has just said, divorce was not part of the original design. It was a concession to human sinfulness. 
And, and Jesus said anyone who puts his wife away for any reason other than her sexual immorality was effectively committing adultery. He says, you're not fooling anybody. When you put your older wife away and grab yourself a new wife, that's just adultery. You can call it whatever you like. You can dress it up however you like. I'm not buying it. Jesus raised the bar so high here that the disciples were literally thunderstruck. They said to him, if such is the case of a man with his wife, it is better not to marry. If you can't get rid of her once you don't like her anymore and she's bothering you, what's the point of taking her on in the first place? These are the men greatly transformed by grace later on. Pillars of the church. This is who they were when they met Jesus, though. But he said to them, not everyone can receive this saying, but only those to whom it is given. See that? You've got to have grace to live the way God wants you to do, can't you? Don't you? For there are eunuchs who have been so from birth. Now, he's using the word eunuch there. That, this word eunuch was used in the first century to refer to celibates, people who did not have sex. So he says, there, for there are eunuchs who have been so from birth, meaning they were born with some kind of defect which kept them from entering into a sexual relationship. And there are eunuchs who have been made eunuchs by men. That's the use of the phrase we're familiar with. To be made a eunuch by men is to be castrated. That was very common in the Eastern world for people who served in the king's household. And there are eunuchs who have made themselves eunuchs, that is, who have chosen to be celibate for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. Let the one who is able to receive this, receive it. So Jesus is saying, here's, here's the standard, boys. And if you don't like it, I suppose you could go and choose to be a eunuch. But I am not lowering the bar as a concession to your lack of self-control. I like that. And that's how it works in the kingdom of God. Jesus doesn't lower the bar. He gives us more grace. He lifts us up so that we can live the way we were created and intended to live. Grace restores nature, not abolishes it. Grace makes us able to be the sort of people who are capable of lifelong intimate partnership. Thanks be to God. Second thing we see as we survey the New Testament documents is an insistence on love and respect. The New Testament prescriptions pressed directly on the root sins that had harmed and diminished the institution of marriage. To men who are inclined to lust, there is a command to love. To women who are inclined to resentment, there is a command to respect. And that was the instruction given by Paul to the men and women in Ephesus. He said, let each one of you love his wife as himself and let the wife see that she respects her husband. So men, let me ask you a question. Do you love your wife as yourself? In fact, Paul has set the bar higher than even you might think earlier in this passage. In verses 25 to 28, he says, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish in the same way. Husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. Do you see what he's doing? He's saying, now listen, if I ask you, if I say to you, love your wife as yourself, you're a fallen man. You might say, actually, I don't like myself that much. 
So he says, well, let me, let, me, let me give you a perfect example of a perfect man. Let me show you how Jesus loved his bride, the church. This is, this is what it should look like. Jesus loved the church at great cost to himself. His love was sacrificial. His, his, his love included washing her in the water of the word. His love was towards the end of her growth and becoming Husbands, are you committed to loving your wife in that way? Do you love her sacrificially? Do you pay her first? One of the things I always look for in a young man, if he's got toys, I look and see what his wife has got. Are you buying yourself toys before you're taking care of your wife? No man needs 11 shotguns. Let me put that out there. How many things are you killing this week? And so if your wife has to get a second job to buy food for the kids while you've got 11 shotguns, you are not loving your wife as Christ loved the church. Can we put that out there? To love your wife as Christ loved the church is to pay her first. It is to see to her growth and becoming. It is to love her at the cost of even your own life. Husbands, how are we doing with that? Do you need more grace? Are you saying that bar is too high? Good. Then go to the cross and ask for grace. And while you're there, repent of your sin, repent of your lust, repent of your selfishness, repent of your greed and your obsession with toys, and ask for continual supplies of the Spirit so that you could be the man you were created and intended to be. And wives, and right away we're like, ah, why didn't you just say amen and close it there? (laughs) Ah, here we go. You were doing so well. See the, see, the Bible is an equal opportunity offender. The Bible, the Bible assumes that both men and women are sinners. So wives, how you doing? How you doing with the command to respect? Do you resent your husband? Do you desire to do for him, which he transparently cannot do for himself? Do you desire to control him? Do you use sex? Do you dole out sex to get your husband to do what you want done and to go where you want to go? Well, if you do, then you need to take those sins to the foot of the cross and you need to repent. And you need to ask there for supplies of the Spirit, for further grace to grow into the person, into the woman, into the wife that God had created and intended you to be. Now, that feels maybe like a good place to end. But actually, if we're going to be faithful to the text, there's one more thing we need to say. We must also acknowledge, as we read through the New Testament, that there is an increasing awareness of the temporality and eventual termination of the institution of marriage. Jesus, in a conversation that he had with the Sadducees, drops a bit of a bombshell. He says, for in the resurrection, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. Pardon? What does that even mean? It appears to mean that as wonderful and glorious and fruitful and good as the institution of marriage is, it was never intended to last forever. It has a specific purpose. 
It was conceived and designed so as to fill the earth with human beings, people who love God and care for creation. And when we have enough of those people, apparently, the practice and the institution will cease. That is new information. And the Apostle Paul appears to have reflected deeply on this new information because what he says in 1 Corinthians 7 feels to us like a significant departure from everything we've read in the Bible thus far. Paul, in that chapter, seems to be saying that in the overlap of the ages, by that I mean in the time between the first coming of Jesus and the second coming of Jesus, when everything is different but everything is not yet the way it will be, when creation exists and new creation is starting to exist, in the overlap of the ages, marriage is good and so too is singleness good, provided that both are embraced for the sake of the mission. And we're going to talk about this again in a couple of weeks. There are lots of people who are single in our culture for the wrong reasons. If you feel called to singleness because you feel called to travel and fornication, that's not a category in the Bible. But if you feel called to singleness so that you can have laser focus on the mission, that is a category in the Bible. In fact, we're going to, apparently, according to Paul, we're going to need more of those people as we go along. We're going to need more people with laser focus on the mission because single people can do some things that married people can't do. Single people can go some places that married people can't go. So things are going to be a little bit different in the last lap. In the last lap, we're going to need all the tools. We're going to need healthy, loving, respectful fruitful marriages, and we're going to need focused, intentional, missional singleness. Both are good. Both are temporary. Both have a purpose, and both will be replaced by something better. An intimate relationship with our Creator through the person and work of Jesus Christ, and a forever family made up of people from every tribe, tongue, and nation on planet Earth Thanks be to God. Let's pray together. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for this beautiful design. It is good. It was good then. It is good now. We're thankful. Lord, I pray that you would give us grace to become the husbands and wives you created and intended us to be. pray that you'd give us grace to love one another. Lord, I pray right now for husbands in this church. We, Lord... Standing here as a man, and I confess, we are selfish. Our appetites are often out of all order and proportion. And so, Lord, we need grace to love our wives sacrificially, to love our wives as Christ loved the church. Lord, I pray for sisters in this church. It is easy to feel powerless. It is easy to feel resentful. It is easy to manipulate and control. And Lord, pray for grace to be focused on the shared mission, to be respectful of what each person brings to the table, to be patient with grievances and weaknesses we see in the other. Lord, give us grace. Lord, I pray that the families, the marriages in, in this church would be ideal places for the nurture and raising of little worshipers. 
little ones who would love the Lord Jesus, would love their own bodies, would feel connected to creation, and who would have a desire to glorify their creator. Oh God, give us grace and supplies of the Spirit toward that end, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.